services, also community engagement, more to come on that. I'm preaching today, and, uh, and then when you came in, uh, I was cutting paper because I didn't know how to get to our paper cutter. The door was locked. So I was the paper cutter, and then Christine came to the rescue. Thank you, Christine. Uh, so some of you got a piece of paper, most of you. Can you raise your hand if you didn't get a little thing, uh, that little thing that says, who am I, and it's got the arrows and stuff? Dave will get it to you. Um, that's a little thing that we'll need later in the service today. So raise your hand if you didn't get one. If you're not sure, raise your hand. Don't be shy. It'd be good to have this in your hands. Also, if you're a parent who's feeling responsible and generous and is like, I'll give one to my kid. I don't need one. False. You need one. You do. Everyone does. Today, this sermon is for everybody. Um, except the kids, evidently. They left. But I would have preached to them if they would have stayed. So today, we're going to deal with two questions. Uh, when I originally got this text, I thought it was just Ephesians 2, 11 through uh, 17. So I had one question. Then I found out it was 11 through 22, which led to two questions. But I think they complement each other. They go together. And I want to kind of survey the text today. Uh, today is not like a gospel narrative. So it's not a story of Jesus. It's not a um, apocalypse prophetic type thing from Revelation. It's not an Old Testament text. There's no story to it. It's instruction. And instruction can be hard to take in. So again, I just want to survey it, but I'll try to break it down. The first way we'll do that is with two questions. Question one, what is it like to be without God in the world? Question two will be, what's it like to be at home with God? I think if we answer both, it might make us stronger, uh, more at rest, more able to lean into our calling. So uh, first question and raise your hand. Who thinks they know from their own experience what it's like to be without God in the world? Anybody? I'll raise my hand. It's not always all of us. I know my wife and I's testimonies are very different. My wife grew up in the church, and, uh, and it worked, I guess you could say. Or she, For her, she would say that she doesn't remember a time of not trusting Jesus. Praise the Lord. Man, if anyone doesn't have that testimony, you know how good that sounds. My testimony is I remember a lot of years of not trusting the Lord. I had to go through a lot maybe before I was willing to submit or surrender. God knows our story. He knows what I need. But let's try to answer this question. What's it like to be without God in the world? We're going to start with the text here. And I'll read the text, but I'll read it in two parts. Here's the first part. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 12. If you want to grab your Bible, I will put this on the screen right now. But then you're going to need your Bible to work through this later. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You can leave that up there for just a minute while everyone finds their page. All you Bible readers, open up those Bibles. Jason's been trying to get us to do this. Follow along in our text. Follow along on the pages because it's not going to stay on the screen for you. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. So I want to pick apart these two questions. First one, again, what's it like to be without God in the world? And I want to do three little observations to pick apart each question. So for this first uh, scripture and for the first question, what's it like to be without God in the world? Uh, point one or kind of thought observation number one, it's being outside the door. 
Think about this for a second. Picture at your house being outside the door, maybe overnight. Sound uncomfortable? We're not used to this. Picture going to a friend's house, and you knock, and you knock, and you knock, and no one opens. you got to walk back home. Picture being in a place of need where you don't have a home, and you're told an address to go to, and you go to that address, and you knock, and you knock, and the lights are out, and no one answers. Picture never having had a home, and you hear news of a home, and you go there, and the door is shut. First thing about what it's like to be without God in the world is being outside the door. Remember, remember is the first word that, uh, that Paul uses here. He says, therefore, remember, which means use our minds, go back. He's, he's saying, even to those like my wife, who, who for them, the story has always been trusting Jesus. Again, mine is coming to him later. But in both stories, he says to us, remember. So how are we supposed to remember? If I've always known Jesus, how do I remember? He says, remember who you are. Remember what your nature is. He says, you Gentiles. Anybody know what the word Gentile means? It meant you were not a Jew. It meant you were outside the covenant. It was a way to refer to the Norwegians and to the Germans and to the Russians and to the uh, native peoples all across the world, to folks in the southern parts of Africa and throughout. There was a small number of people that were not Gentiles. They were called the Jews. They were a covenant people. They claimed as their father who? Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, remember at one time, you Gentiles... In other words, he could, we could translate this. Remember at one time, you outsiders. You're like, me, an outsider? Remember you ignorant, you sinful. Remember you unclean peoples, the ones who are not welcome in the temple. Remember the idol worshipers. Remember you are the covenant breakers. And like this is getting personal. We're like, I didn't do any of those things. He says, according to the flesh, you are called the circumcision. You're called by that by those who were the circumcision in the flesh, which is ironic, uh, both measuring by fleshly ways. I think to understand this for a second, we need to do two things. We need to go back to ancient history. So the first piece of ancient history, that archaic, like, tribal experience that we can all remember is the middle school lunchroom, okay? Remember, remember, he says, you outsiders, Remember going into that lunchroom, looking around, surveying the tables, and where are you going to sit? That's the question. Anybody remember? You're like, no, I was an insider. Nice to be you, okay? Most people had an outsider moment at least at one point in their life where you've walked into a cafeteria. We'll actually have a community brunch later. Hopefully it's not too much of an outsider experience. If you don't know anybody, it is. If you're unknown, that's what the strangers, outsider word means. It's for, you're from the outside, on the outside of the door. Peter, if you remember from Galatians, Paul is writing and he reveals that Peter, when, when he felt pressure from the Jews to act like a Jew, he actually stopped eating with the outsiders, with the Gentiles, even though Peter told the Gentiles, hey, you can be included too in Jesus, the good news is for you. But then some Jewish folks showed up and Peter's like, ah, sorry, I can't sit with you guys. Then that's going to affect my cool factor. And he slides over with the Jews. And then all the other Jews that had been sitting with Gentiles slid over until even Barnabas, the missionary, the one who was sent to the Gentiles, slid over until you had a primarily covenant Jewish table and the Gentiles are left as outsiders again. 
And what did Paul do when he got there? He stood up in front of the whole cafeteria and he confronted Peter to his face. He said, this is inappropriate. You are walking out of step with the gospel. So that's the first way to think about the outsider thing. It's something we've all experienced, middle school lunch way, lunchroom. Another way to remember is to go back to the father, the father of our race. I'm not talking about God. We like to say that all people on the earth are children of God. I don't know if that's quite a biblical way to speak of it. We like to speak of it that way. It makes some of us feel better. But the actual father of our race is who? Adam. If you know your Bible history, Adam and Eve are the ones who are heralded as the father and mother of our race. They're the ones who are the forebears. We read about them, ancient history. If you've ever tried to read through your Bible in a year, you know who Adam and Eve are, right? Because you at least got through those first couple chapters of Genesis. <laughs> Strangers is in our blood. Outsiders is in our DNA. Being outside the door, being unknown, being disconnected from something we're supposed to be connected to. Our parents, our first parents, stole the knowledge from the tree. You remember that? God said, don't eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. They said, we'd be better off if we did, and they took it. And in the process, they traded knowledge in their way for the knowledge of the holy. They gave up the knowledge of God. They were exiled. They were put out. And from then on, they were outside the door. So can you remember? Can you remember your Bible history? Remember that there was a time when humans forfeited their right to be in the presence of God. And you said, that wasn't me, but it doesn't matter, because that was your father, your first father, Adam. That's where we come from. We are outsiders by birth at this point. So the first thing, being outside the door, the second thing that's like it, I would say, is being far off. You'll hear in the text today that you who were once far off, Far off is like further than outside the door, right? Like, like we're supposed to be in the garden and we come knock and it's blocked. We don't even know where the garden is at this point. Like it's lost to us. Heaven is closed. We don't know what to do with this. Like, can I get in? I hope I'm a good enough person to get in. That's how I would describe it. Eventually you start to become clueless. Eventually you are completely removed from the knowledge of God. Listen to these texts. If you're in your Bible, look at this. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from the Messiah. That means cut off. It means there's no connection. It means there was no salvation for you or for me. He says, remember there was a time when you were cut off. Remember humanity, human race. Remember when you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember when you were strangers to the covenants, when you had no hope and you were without God. The Bible is super real. Like, I think I came to Christ, I was like really on fire in my early 20s, and then I like calmed down because I was scaring people, and then I like stopped preaching certain things because it seemed to not win as many people over, and I've slowly over the years been like, wow, I should come back to the things that nourish me, the things that are like deep Bible. Here's one of them. If you're without Christ, evidently, you are without hope and you are without God in the world. This is a hard doctrine. But just think about it for a second. If you are separated from Christ, if you are cut off from the Messiah, cut off from the Savior, man, you are for sale every single day. If you don't have that anchor, the way I describe it is you are bought by temporary things. 
If you're not bought by blood, you're bought by temporary things every day, bought and sold. We're all wearing tags. We're all wearing brands right now. We all drove cars or rode bikes to get here. We buy our houses. We buy and sell temporary things, and they come to control us. We chase after temporary relationships, thinking that they will bring us fulfillment. They don't. They control us. We elect people thinking that they will liberate us. They don't. They become one more layer of slavery. Everything we choose to try to set ourselves free in this world cannot ultimately set ourselves free because the ultimate freedom is going to be freedom with God. And who can give you that but God himself? Separated from Christ means bought by temporary things. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning I have no inheritance. I might have a rich granddaddy or a grandmom. I might have a rich mom or dad. I might have an uncle who's going to going to have mercy on me, but any inheritance they're going to give me is going to turn to dust. Amen? Are you tracking? Anything I get, any house I build, any retirement savings I put together, they might take care of my body for a while, but eventually they will do me no good. Carving out an inheritance in this world, doing anything I can, so I build a life on pride, look what I can do, or I build a life on victimhood, look at what has been taken from me. That's a hard one. I've been there. I'm working on some of that right now, both sides. Strangers to the covenants. This is like weird language. Covenants. What are covenants? If anyone in here is wearing a wedding ring, that's a covenant. Humans, as descendants of Adam and Eve, are descendants of covenant breakers. We're not good at keeping promises, are we? We're not good at covenants. But God is a covenant-keeping God. And there is one central covenant that he makes with us. It is his relationship to us. He says, you're strangers to that. Remember? Remember human race when you had no idea about the covenants of promise? You didn't know what God was doing with Israel. You didn't care. Christian, your ancestors were digging in dirt, worshiping Odin, afraid of the dark. Like, that was their inheritance. That was their life. Strangers to the covenants of peace. So then submitting to either foolish desires on the daily basis, or I would say submitting to false hopes. Uh, maybe if I pray enough, maybe if I go to the temple enough, maybe if I just leave a good enough legacy, I'll mean something. This is a hard one. Having no hope. If you're looking in your text, look at those words. They're there. This is, this is Paul the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This isn't me. This is him. Having no hope, he says. Have you looked at your neighbors who don't know Jesus and have you been like, wow, I wonder what it feels like to have no hope? Or have you been like, eh, they seem all right. Having no hope, which leaves me in two, one of two places, I think. Either numb or pursuing self with wild abandon obsessed with myself, which numbness, complacency is a form of obsession where you've chosen to just surrender to the identity right in front of you. But either numb or pursuing obsession with self, I'm going to do everything I can to be happy. Man, I just got to find peace if I can just get there. Fulfillment in any way possible. Again, victimhood because it's like, well, they got in the way of my happiness. They got in the way of my peace. They got in the way of my success. Look at what I could have been if it wasn't for them. Last one, without God. This is a really hard part of being far off. I remember it well. And I think as a child of covenant myself, raised up in a Christian family, I probably had God attending to me all through the years. But man, my heart got dark. My mind got foolish. I had no idea who God was. So 
So I don't know, quite know what that means for me, but I do have a sense of what it's like to be without God in the world. And what I'll say is this. I didn't minister in the temple of the Lord. I ministered in every other temple there was. The temple of pleasure, I ministered there. I ministered in the temple of pride. I ministered in the temple of ambition. Well, here's my five-year plan. I'm going to get there, and if I do, I'll be fine. I ministered in the temple of fear, fear of judgment, fear of what people would say about me. I ministered in the temple of obligation. Man, I just got to do these things. Just keep doing them, and someday it'll work out. I ministered in the temple of guilt, and eventually that one was too much for me, so I just burned my conscience and stopped listening. All these, I would say, would be the temple of self. If you're not going to minister in the temple of the Lord, you'll minister in the temple of self to one of these ends. So here's an example, just to make it really practical. I'm talking about being far off. Because I've been walking with Jesus like in a full adult way since probably, uh, I guess, for like 12, 13 years now. But still I do this thing called people-pleasing. Anybody relate to that? It's okay. Uh, some of us do. You guys who don't, you got your own problems. We'll talk about them later. Um, People-pleasing. I was at a pastor's conference this last Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, and it was great. It was so much fun, and I was very intentional because sometimes when I've been at that pastor's conference, I've sought the favor of influential people, and I decided this year, man, that's a hamster wheel. I'm going to get off it. Right? I'm going to be intentional with my time. So I was being with my mentors. I was being with friends. I was just enjoying it. And then one of those influential people tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Christian, come talk to me. And I was like, ah, I don't really want to, but okay. And so I went and sat down with him. Bless his heart. It was good spent time. But afterwards, about an hour later, when he had dug a bunch of information out of me, not by prying, but just by being there, and I felt the pressure as a people pleaser, some obligation to try to like give him something because he's investing in me. And I got done, and I was like, why did I just share all that stuff? Why did I share? And I talked to one of my mentors later who was there. I was like, man, it's been a good conference, but bless his heart. One guy pulled me aside and talked to me, and I felt like I just way overshared. I didn't need to share that stuff with him. And he said, it's because you wanted to control him. I said, what? He said, I'm a people pleaser too. It's how I control people. It's how I make sure they think a certain thing of me. It's how I make sure that I am in control of their opinion of me. I share, I please, I dance, I do what I need to to be in the right position with them. Does it sound like I'm serving God or serving man? So, outside the door, far off, I knew this would be a fun sermon. Here we go. Uh, the last one, the last one, I want to just put it up there and be real, under judgment. Because sometimes the way that we'll describe someone without Christ, some way that, sometimes the way I'll describe uh, like, oh, well, shoot, I just didn't know. Because ignorance really is the thing. We're outside the door. We're far off. That goes back to Adam. We didn't know. Lord, I'm so sorry I didn't know. But there's an activeness to this, and it's called judgment. If you read Romans 1, you see a picture of God with humanity. And he says, you know what? If you choose not to honor me, I choose to give you up. Not completely. My sun will still shine on you. The rain still falls on the wicked and on the good. The, the love of the Lord fills the earth. And yet he says, I'm going to give up your heart. I'm going to give up your mind. The places of pride. I'm going to let you rule there. And I'm going to let you taste the fruit of that. Under judgment. Perishing. Does anyone remember the story of the lost coin? The widow who loses the coin and then she finds it? 
or the lost sheep, and the shepherd who goes out and finds that sheep. Lost is that word. Another way you could translate it, the same word, is perishing. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. This is a state that people are in apart from Christ. Perishing. Pursuing, yes. Desiring, yes. But ignorantly. Not knowing the name of the one whose image we bear. Man, I'm chasing all these things in the world because I don't actually know who I'm supposed to belong to, the one I'm supposed to pursue. Advancing in futility. Think of all our advances since what could we call the dark ages, right? But has our relationship with, as a human race, has our relationship with God improved in the last 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years, 2,000 years? Our hearts are still in the dark ages. I just was reading something from a pastor in the early 1800s. I swear he was describing 2022. He was like, oh, the hearts are fading. The culture is growing cold. People aren't worshiping in their homes anymore. People don't even know how to worship. We have to rekindle that. We have to teach people how to worship the Lord. This was like 200 and something years ago. I was like, oh, I, th I thought I was figuring that out right now. No, like that's been there for a while. But ultimately, I think what humanity is doing, the reason we're under judgment, is we despise the truth that all of this goes back to the oldest ache, the oldest loss. We try to fill the hole, just shovelfuls, bucketfuls. Man, we have access to a lot of pleasure, a lot of guilt, shame, ambition, a lot of obligation today, a lot of fear. There's whole kinds of things we can dump into this hole. We are an entertained, numb people, and yet it isn't working because it all goes back to the earliest loss when we got shut outside the garden and we walked away, we ended up far off, under judgment, not knowing what happened, but wishing we could just go back. Remember. Does that word make sense? Can you feel it? Even if you've been walking with Christ your whole life, you've tasted it. Remember, he says. <clears throat> so here's the flip side. That's what it's like to be without God in the world. I like to then look at what's it like to be at home with God. Because I think we've got to claim this. We've got to step into this. This is an invitation. If you're in the room today and you're like, gosh, I don't know if I have any relationship with God. I don't know if I've ever, like, surrendered to Christ. Cool. Like, think through this right now. Think what a surrendered life would look like. If you've been walking with him all your life and you're like, but gosh, it feels kind of numb or kind of empty. Cool. Think through this right now. This is what it's like to be at home with the Lord. Let's read it. Verse 13. So if you've got your Bible, verse 13 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the what? The blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Pause. He's about to be talking right now about Jews and Gentiles. Remember Peter left the lunch table, went and sat with the cool kids. Turned out they weren't the cool kids. Everybody was like cool now, like all together. This is what he's saying. There's no dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. There's no hostility in the church. Huh. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Hallelujah.
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the first one, first observation, here's our second question, right? Like, what's it like to be at home with God? First one, it's just like super simple, but I think we got to claim it, is that we are siblings in this house. Remember what Jesus said, do not call anyone father. You have one father in heaven. Do not call anyone teacher. You have one teacher, one rabbi. We're all siblings in this house, brothers and sisters. How often in the New Testament is, are the terms brothers and sisters used? I don't know. I didn't look it up. But I bet it's a lot, okay? Open your Bible. Beloved, brothers and sisters, siblings in this house. You see the language he used in verse 19? He said, you are the household of God. But not servants and then like the real kids and then like the really good kids and then like dad. Nope. I heard it said this weekend and I love it. One of my mentors pointed out to me, reminded me that God has no grandchildren. Amen? God only has kids. There's no second generation thing with God. You're either directly related to God or you are not related to God. God has no grandchildren. The household of God. So the church uses family language all through the New Testament. But look, look what's happened to make that possible. Verse, uh, go back up to verse uh, 16, I think. Or no, sorry, verse 14. It says, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. So that's not meant to be like, like mysterious. It's meant to be really visible, right? Like when whips were tearing his body apart, right? Like when, when the crown of thorns and blood was coming down, when he was dying, when he like couldn't breathe anymore on the cross, what was he doing? He was killing hostility. Because no longer were we going to look at each other and try to solve our problems by being good enough for each other. We weren't going to look at each other anymore and try to be good enough. And if we were good enough, then we were going to accept each other. No, we were going to look at a cross and be healed. And then we we're going to treat each other different because of that. And then when we failed to treat each other different, even our spouses, even our kids, our best friends, our enemies, where do we go? We look at the cross again and we get healed again. Because he broke down in his body the dividing wall. He killed the hostility in his flesh. You tracking? There is no hostility in this house. Can you say that with me? No hostility in this house. You know how much hostility there is among Christians? Like I went at this pastor's conference, and you know how I could like trigger every pastor in the room? There was one pastor, I think, who was above it, and I think it's kind of done a lot of soul work. Or he's working in California, so he's just had to face the news a lot sooner than we have out here. But uh, any pastor I talked to, I felt like I could trigger them by asking them one question. How many people go to your church? Whoa, the pride comes up. It was either shame or pride, which is still pride probably, either way. There is so much hostility in the church. You hang out with the Baptists and the Lutherans are bogus and the Presbyterians too a little bit. You hang out with the Presbyterians and it's like all those Baptists, man, they're just so on fire. You talk to the Pentecostals and no one's figured it out except for them, but they're kind of right about some things. So we try to like keep up with them. But you put us all together and what, what is not in this house? 
hostility. If there's hostility, is it from the Spirit? No, it's literally just the flesh. Man, there is some corruption in the church today. But then you read a book and you find out it was there 200 years ago. Then you read another book called the Bible and you find out it was there 2,000 years ago. We do this hostility thing so easily. But there's no tribes anymore in the church. There's going to be divisions at times based on theology and stuff. That's okay. But the hostility doesn't belong. Because he has created one new man in place of the two. Why in a marriage is hostility inappropriate? Because the two have become one. You're one flesh, right? That's why it's so hard. Where else have the multiple become one? In the church. Go figure it's so hard. There's like a spirit that's like pulling at us to be one and to figure this out and to be alive with the spirit. One new man in place of the two. This was necessary because what? Remember, there was one man who dropped the ball. His name was Adam. He's our father, our first father. So we had to get a new mediator, a new replacement. We needed a new father. We stepped into the relationship through Jesus. Our first father forfeited the presence of God. Our new savior gives us the presence of God back. His name is Jesus. And so this is what he does. He creates one new man in place of the two. So that means that in the church, in the kingdom... We are all descended from one race, a race that failed, the race of Adam and Eve, and we are now bought and by bud and moved into one new race, the race of those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. There's not like an Asian race here, and there's not like an African race, and there's not like a European race, and then like the Norwegians who think they're their own race, like none of that. Like there's actually one race now. Now, we still have differences. We celebrate them. We're happy about them. But there's no what in this house? There's no hostility. There is peace. Because every single person, again, God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters who have been adopted. Remember that you were separated. So check this out. There is peace because every single person sitting in this room, every single person across the planet who has trusted Jesus, you are an exile who has returned. So I don't get to judge anybody. You are a rebel who has surrendered. Wow, there's a bunch of rebels around me who have surrendered too. I should just praise God for that. You are a sinner who has been washed clean. Man, I got nothing to stand on, just the blood of Jesus. You're trusting the blood of Jesus too? Amen. You are a criminal who has been pardoned. Criminals are supposed to get consequences for their crimes. You didn't get the consequences either? Man, we are lucky ducks. Okay. Siblings in this house. Number two, one's really simple. We're no longer far off. We are now very simply brought near by his blood. Brought near by the good deeds that we are doing every day. Yes? Brought near by the way I treated my family for the last 16 years. Brought near by the blood of Jesus. And by how many ways I have served in the last month. No, brought near by the blood of Jesus. So brought near by his blood in his house. This is crazy. This is actually where you live now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you live in a space, a new realm. It's called the realm of forgiveness, the realm of righteousness, the realm of peace. Look at the language. If you're looking at your Bible, <clears throat> it says, through his cross. Through the cross, that means that you were bought by blood once and for all. Do you see any crosses on any hills where Jesus is dying like in 2022? 
How long ago did this happen? 2,000 years ago, approximately. So when did you get saved? I love this question. When did you guys get saved? 2,000 years ago. It wasn't when you made a decision for Christ. It wasn't when your parents baptized you. It was 2,000 years ago when a body was torn to pieces on your behalf. And you've just caught up. You've just gotten on board. You've just received the gift. Built on the foundation. Check this piece out. You see in uh, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does that mean? Built on the word of God. Man, I remember being at a church when I was being part of a congregation when I was younger, and the pastor stood up front and he said, in this congregation we stand on the word of God. And I remember like a sigh of relief, which I was like, man, a whole bunch of people would be like, the word of God, are you kidding me? But I was like, hallelujah, because this is going to be simpler than I thought. Built on the word of God, specifically the apostles, right? Which is, you've got the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John gospels, which are attributed to apostles by connection or directly. You've got the letters to the Ephesians and to the Galatians and to the Corinthians and to the Romans, which is written by the apostles. You have First and Second Peter, you have First and Third John, you have Revelation. All these come from who? The apostles, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, because there's New Testament prophets, but also the Old Testament prophets. And who's the cornerstone? Jesus himself. Everyone leading up to Jesus was prophets. So what is he saying? Built on the foundation of the word of God. Hallelujah. I'm not built on foolish desires anymore. I'm not built on ambition. I'm not built on victimhood. I'm not built on pride. I'm just built on the word of God. That's going to destroy me, but I'm super excited about it because it's going to make me better. Access in one spirit. You see that? Verse 19. Sorry, verse 18. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That means that we are now submitting to the Holy Spirit. Did you know that God has desires? Like, like he desires things. You're like, no, he just makes laws and then he just kind of sits up there and we desire things and we're wrong for it. No, no, God has powerful, profound desires. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Um, how does it go? Uh, you might know it. Um, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy desires be done. Anyone prayed that before? Thy will. We're like, oh, the will of God. <laughs> That's the thing we can't do. No, no, it's just his desires. The desires of God were like, let those happen down here. Like, he desires me to be reconciled to my enemies. Let that happen. He desires me to be forgiven and full of freedom and peace and joy. Let that happen. He desires to get great glory in this world. Let it happen. It's his world. Pursuing relationship with God. Access in one spirit to the Father. And check this out. Here's where we're going to land today grows into a holy temple to the Lord. I had never noticed before that this household made up of siblings who were bought by the blood of Jesus become something, right? Like I thought it was just two metaphors. Hey, we're a house, right? Like who here has a house? We can understand that. And do, 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 we're a temple. But no, actually, look at it. The household grows up to become what? A temple, you got a bunch of brothers and sisters who, because of the way they relate to God, are becoming a temple. What happens in a temple? God lives there. What else? What? Worship. So we're becoming a place of worship. 
We're becoming a household where God can be known and loved and lifted up. Remember the whole thing about pleasing? Remember the mentor who was like, hey, I just please to control? And I'm like kind of reflecting on that now. Well, let's go to God. Why does God want me to stop being a people pleaser? If you're a people pleaser or a people dominator, on the other hand, why does God want you to stop? Is it just because it's sinful? Oh, that thing, sinful. It's because he wants you to be aware of him. He wants you to think about him and his desires. He wants you to be his child. And if you're worried about pleasing other people or controlling other people or dominating other people, who are you not worried about? God. This last thing is the becoming. We're becoming his dwelling place. What's it like to be at home with God? It's painful, you guys, because we are becoming something. If you want to not change, if you want to resist change, if you want to be super comfortable and complacent, please get off the Christianity train. Like, like get out of relationship to the living God. Because if you're going to be in relationship to a living God, you're going to have to be alive yourself and living and growing. Growing into a temple, becoming a dwelling place. This is like the secret of Christian living. If you ever read Christian authors, tell me if you're tracking with me. Who here has read Christian authors and you're like, man, they have like such faith. Like they get it. Especially if you read old authors, like ones from 100, 200, 500 years ago, 600,000, 1,500 years ago. You're like, man, there was like something living and moving in them. Well, it was this becoming thing. We had a missionary here a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, and he said that the U.S. is possibly the most narcissistic nation in the history of the world. We should suspect that we will resist naturally at this point change. We will resist pain. That's what narcissism is. Resisting suffering in any way. Resisting things that challenge my perspective. Resisting things that would make me grow into something else. I'd rather be right who I am, stare in the mirror, and just love myself. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? That won't be Jesus doing that for you. That won't be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell you he loves you, but then he'll ask you to grow and change. Being built together into a dwelling place for God, this is absolutely shocking. Because really what all this is about is returning to the knowledge of the holy. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? They got shut outside the door. We got shut out at the same time. What we're being invited back to is not just being churchgoers, we're not just, being not just being invited back into being Bible studiers. These are good things. We're not just being invited back into being servants or like lovers of people or even lovers of God. We're actually invited back into the core thing, which is knowledge of the holy. We're being invited back into the temple, back into this place where we would actually know everything about God and be moved by him and pulled by him and care about him. Here's the thing. I think as a church, we hope that we'll get better. But I bet the, the quotient of how we're getting better is how many of us in here are praying. And this is often not me. I've often said, hey, I suck at prayer. That's not my gift. I'm glad other people are praying. Guess what that has done to my growth? It has killed it in certain areas. Prayer is your inheritance. Don't raise your hands, but honestly, who in this room is spending time in the secret place with God? Like five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. Five minutes is like a good start. But how much of his presence are you going to get in five minutes? Let's just be dead honest. 
I'm a five-minute, ten-minute person. I, like, feel good about myself, and then I go about my day. But I know he usually doesn't wreck me in five minutes. We're becoming a dwelling place. We're becoming this place where he can, like, rest. Here's the thing about Christians, and this is, like, a hard word, but I'm just going to say it. I think we have hope, right? Now we have hope. We know where we're going. But I don't think we've surrendered the control, the stolen fruit. Why did they take it? Did they take it thinking that they'd lose heaven? No, they, th- they took it thinking that they would gain control. And we're still holding on to that. Do I have any dominators in this room? When you face a problem, you dominate your way through it. Do I have any pleasers in this room? I already asked about you. When you face a problem, you try to please your way through it. Do I have, hey students, any rebellers in this room? I spent years as a rebeller. I can still go back there to conquer people if I need to. But it's not of the spirit, it's just flesh. I think we have hope, Christian hope but we have not surrendered our control, and it's killing us. So I have a little something in front of you today, and I told my wife I feel super pretentious being like a piece of work in progress uh, to ask you guys to do this, but you have a piece of paper that you got when you came in. Grab that piece of paper. Not your bulletin. That's useful too, but the piece of paper that talks about kind of some of what we talked about today. You'll see categories. You'll see bought, building, submitting, pursuing, ministering. I want you guys to do a self-check. And again, five minutes usually doesn't really pull you into his presence. So maybe spend like 20 minutes with this or an hour or I don't know. Or maybe like be like this kid doesn't know what he's talking about and just spend your own time with God. That's great. But this is meant to be a little temple self-check for you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's a tension in temple life. You got to ask, where am I living? Because if people come, if they find what we're doing and they don't find the Holy Spirit, then they haven't really found Christ. They might get the words, but they need the Spirit. So ask these questions of yourself. Am I bought right now by temporary things or am I bought by the blood of Jesus? Ask yourself, am I building on pride or on victimhood? My cycle of thoughts, what am I building on, right? Like if I build my house on sand, it'll fall. So think about this, am I building on victimhood, right? Like it's all about what they've done to me. Or am I building on pride? It's all about what I've done. Or am I building on the word of God? Am I submitting to the foolish desires and false hopes of this world? Man, I am addicted to something and I need to own it. Man, I am hopeful that if I just get around this corner, it's going to be better. Or am I submitting to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit isn't waiting for you tomorrow or in like 10 years. He's actually right now here today asking you to submit. Am I pursuing myself? Obsessed, obsessed with myself. That's where humans live. Or am I pursuing a relationship with God at all cost? And finally, am I ministering the temples of pleasure, ambition, fear, guilt, it's the one I missed. There's lots of them. Or am I ministering in the temple of the Lord? This is who we are now. We're temple people. Everywhere you go is a ministry to the Lord. Everywhere you go, your prayers are incense to him. Everywhere you go, your thoughts, your voice are precious to him. I think we have hope, but we don't always surrender control. So I'm going to let you take a minute with that. Worship team is up here. Um, At some point, they're going to welcome us into this. But uh, I think I have a video that I want to play for a second because I want to remind you of the Father's heart. 
This is not something that the Gentiles know. <laughs> yeah, we'll let it play a couple times. That's me working on my sermon. All right, click on it again. Let's listen. <laughs> my daughter for like two hours was just going diddly diddly dee. And I was working on my sermon, so I didn't have time for her. That's not God. Literally, once I paid attention, think of what a delight that was to my heart. That is what the Gentiles don't know. But it's what the Jews didn't know either. They didn't know that we're all covenant breakers, but that we have a father who made us for himself and he invites us back in. And he just wants to like laugh over us, giggle over us. He wants to just like be delighted in us. He wants us to delight in him. He wants us to be his kids again, not grandkids, kids. He wants you to be his first thought in the morning, his first thought when you go to bed. He wants you to talk to him about the things you go through, not everybody else. He wants you to really treasure him in your heart above all things. He's your dad. He's a truer dad than your dad on earth. I have to raise Evie and Baron to know that I'm not their first father. I'm the father who's raising them up for their true father. Someday I'll be gone. And I hope by then I've pointed them to another dad that could stick around forever. What we're going to do right now is spend 30 seconds in silence and you have a whole room of people that at least some of us are going to be self-checking, all right? Self-checking and seeing where am I honestly living. Let's go forward on this. Let's be temple people. Let's not live like we're still far off, shut out, under judgment, way on the other side, okay? Uh, Father, I thank you for self-check. I thank you for a space a, to assess what's going on within us. I thank you that Christianity is not just an outward form. I thank you that the Bible is not meant to just give us knowledge. It's actually meant to lead us to the one who wrote the book. It's meant to lead us to relationship. Thank you that this is inward change. Lord, if anyone in here is brand new to Jesus, may I welcome them. Teach them the hard truths, but also welcome them to the wide open pastures of your glory and your goodness. If anyone's been walking with you forever, who's been praying, who's been in the secret place, thank you, because that's probably the reason that we have Trinity Wellsprings Church. It's probably the reason I get to be up here preaching right now. I don't think it's my prayers. I think it's the prayers of others. So thank you, Lord. Lead us deep. Help us to just examine for a moment. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we all said.
a burden too long on my own and I wasn't created to bear it alone and I hear your invitation to let it all go I see it now Laying it down Cause I know that I need you I run to the Father I fall into grace I'm done with the hiding No reason to wait A heart needs a surgeon A soul needs a friend So I run to the Father Again and again And again and again just all stand and sing this last chorus before we close today. So I run to the Father, I fall into grace, I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again Oh, I run to the Father, I fall into grace I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend So I run to the Father again and again and again and again Oh, 
repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your hope. I remember reading that out of Isaiah and thinking, what? Like, I don't have to do something? Nope. And repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your hope. That was said 700 years before Jesus came. It's still true today. In repentance, that means saying sorry, changing your mind. Rest, that means probably putting some worship music on, sitting in a chair, laying on the floor, and just like letting God take care of you for a second. Repentance and rest, and quietness, quietness. If there's any other loud people, I know I just preached the longest sermon ever, so like loud people, I'm here. But in quietness and trust, there's no sermon that I have ever preached that will save me. But there is a Savior who will save me. And quietness and in trust is your strength. So go in peace today, serve the Lord. Thanks be to God, but let him be your quietness, your rest, all your trust, and your strength. In Jesus' name we all said, amen. amen. Community brunch out those doors. If you're new and you filled out a connect card, drop it off and we'll give you a couple gifts. If you need prayer, come on up front. We got prayers up for here for you. Diane and Jeff, they'll take care of you.